According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12 is our starting text this morning. Matthew chapter 12. This morning we will be observing the omnipotence of God in... uh, Providing for my self-control in not uh, <laughs> canceling class. Because six minutes ago, I walked up here behind the pulpit and I found some boxes at my feet that are now sitting right over there. I have, well, they're labeled with Dell on the box. And I have a sneaking suspicion that, uh, that they're laptop computers. So, we'll have about a three-minute class. <laughs> no, we'll teach the full hour and then... <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, but if I start teaching sideways... In any event... No, things just show up. And, and a thing of coffee showed up, too. This is... Uh, I Actually, I know where this came from. Uh, and this is from the Dominican Republic, and uh, I think for our prayer meeting tonight, we're gonna we're gonna have some of this special brew that uh, that ought to be a blessing too. All right. Well, all that being said, let's get to Matthew 12, and we will open with prayer, and we'll move on to the answer for a demand for a sign. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together, and we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask this morning that you would um, bless our gathering together, that our assembly would be for the better and not for the worse, that it would serve to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, this is episode 25, which we ought to be able to wrap up today. Uh, Keep in mind that this is our last Wednesday. you can, the ladies will still be meeting for prayer at 9 o'clock, but there will not be Bible classes uh, next week or the week after. And we will meet on the 4th. Yes, Wednesday the 4th. I come in about midnight the night before, and I figure that has me on the ground at least 10 hours in time to teach Bible class. So somebody said, well, you should just cancel that one too. Give yourself a morning to sleep in. I said, are you kidding? Goodness gracious. All right. So we will have a Bible class on Wednesday morning the 4th, and that will be our next opportunity together. As we look at it here, starting in verse 38, this is a follow-up on the casting out of the demon of the adversaries that are accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And uh, he used that as a teaching opportunity. Now, in, uh, in this episode, he once again has a teaching opportunity, but it gets a little tougher. He's, uh, he's not putting up with the nonsense. They're asking for a miracle. They're asking for a sign. He says, you're not getting one. You're getting one sign. It's the one and only sign you're getting. And that's the sign of, of, uh, of Jonah. So let's read through it here, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as, and that's the key right there, the even as, just as, the um, 
relationship here is stated as one of equivalency. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, great translation, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, they, they do whales and fish and sea monsters and things. They don't know what to do with the text of Jonah. and they're, They don't want to use the word dragon because that seems so medieval and primitive. But we know who the dragon is, don't we? And we don't have any problem with Leviathan and some of the other concepts that uh, modern science wants to, uh, wants to mock. Uh, then verse 41, so there's the equivalency. That's the sign. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or the sea monster. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was a picture. And Jonah was a picture 900 years ahead of time or 800 years ahead of time for Jesus Christ. And the three days in the whale is the equivalent of Jesus Christ in the grave. But just as uh, Jonah was not digested, he came out of the whale. So, too, Jesus Christ uh, does not decay. God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, that he is resurrected and he comes out of the grave. I don't know which is nastier coming out of a grave. I would expect is more pleasant than coming out of a whale. But uh, I guess that's, uh, <laughs> that's what it is. Verse 41, now as a consequence, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. Remember, as soon as he got expelled, as soon as he was regurgitated, yeah, he's on the beach, and then he goes right to Nineveh. And in all of this slimy mess, he preaches. Although I expect he got cleaned up in between, but it's, it's still, it's post whale that he gives this gospel message and Nineveh repents. Jesus Christ is going to come out of the grave and, and yet a man comes back from the dead. Are they going to listen? That's why the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In previous classes, we saw how Sodom and Gomorrah are going to stand up and, and condemn uh, Capernaum. We saw how Tyre and Sidon are going to uh, condemn uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin. That the Old Testament cities that either did not repent or actually did repent are going to have a voice at the judgment. And we're going to see that as this study concludes this morning. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. Consider how far she had to travel, what travel was like in the ancient world, where you were good to make 25 miles in a day over land. And uh, she came from this amazing distance to hear truth, to hear wisdom. And here's Israel. They don't have to travel anywhere. They're not going anywhere. It's coming to them. Jesus Christ is living among them, traveling to their villages, their towns, their cities. And, uh, and they don't want to have any part of the message that Jesus has for them. That gets us down through verse 42. There's an angelic conflict principle that comes up in verses 43 and following. I'll go ahead and read that. Verse 43 says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it, un it, finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. Notice, more wicked than itself. There are degrees of wickedness among the wicked spirits. And that's not to say that, you know, the nicest of demons is, is a whole lot of fun, but there are more wicked spirits than this guy. 
So it takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So we'll have some things to say on that as well. The worsening state of these individuals. And that uh, that's a frightening aspect of angelic conflict and divine discipline, but it should also serve as a warning that if you're under God's hand of discipline and he's waking you up and you actually do wake up, stay awake. Because when you drop back into the carnality again, when you plunge back into darkness again, each time you fall back, it's worse than the previous time you fell back. And we, we, we think about Christianity as, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back, that kind of thing. But every backslide, every step back, every plunge back into darkness actually is worse than the previous times that you fall. And uh, the nature of sin and death is such that there is such a thing as the final fall, the final plunge into darkness for which there is no climbing back out again. So hopefully... Uh, the study we had on sin and death in 1 Corinthians will tie together with this very well and, uh, and be a blessing for us. All right, five things we're gathering out of this text, the first of which is that they actually set the table and, uh, and he delivered the message. The scribes and Pharisees set the table for Jesus' next message when they asked him to manifest a sign for their viewing. They set the table and he served it up good. He just let them have it. All this whining and moaning and, oh, we want to see a sign. They just saw one. He just cast out a demon. And what do they do? They said, oh, well, you only did that by the power of bills above. Right? And now they're saying, oh, show us a sign. Well, smack you upside the head. I just showed you a sign. You don't really want a sign. You don't want to listen to a message. And that's what signs are all about or what they should be all about. The vocabulary for this, a semeon, very important, a sign, a token, an indication, recognizing that what it is isn't so important, it's what it represents. The, the sign itself is just simply pointing to the power or authority of the one that's bringing the message. And it shouldn't be the issue. It should be the credential. You know, when a police officer shows you his badge, you're not supposed to be impressed with a badge. You look at that and say, well, that's a little piece of metal with a tiny, tiny little amount of silver in it. And uh, I'm not really impressed by the value of that badge. But because you're holding the badge, you have the authority of the state of Texas. And you're telling me to pull over. Or you're telling me to do this or whatever you're telling me to do. The authority behind that message means I better pay attention. If it's a police officer telling me, you know, that I'm driving too fast or whatever I'm doing. So let's not confuse the sign with a message behind the sign. Today's signs and wonders movement of the charismatic crowds, they're all, their emphasis is on the, the gee whiz, the miracle. Look at this. I'm speaking in tongues. I'm rolling down the aisle. I'm healing people. No, you're not. Because those were designed to give credentials to those that were writing scripture. You're not writing any scripture. <laughs> all right? So let's not confuse the sign with the meaning behind the sign and what it should be indicating they want to behold they want to observe they want to watch this is great entertainment we want to see ooh, let's see what he does next and uh, what to my wondering eyes should appear you know that's the the, the thing and, and churches thrive on that people come into these entertainment driven type churches and they just can't wait to see what the next uh you know what the next gee whiz is going to be you know is it going to be elephants in the aisles is it going to be jugglers is it going to be what is it going to be and they show up on a sunday excited you know what's the new what's the new program going to be the signs of Jesus were not for their own sake, but were evidence of his paternal mission. 
See, Nicodemus recognized that in John chapter 3. He said, we know you're a teacher sent from God because no one can do these miracles, these signs, these semea that you are doing unless God is with him. They were also instructive of his gift. The fact that these signs have been written so that you may know that you have eternal life. The signs are there to uh, teach concerning the gift of eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. Which is why... They're going to get the sign of Jonah, and they need it because they need to get saved. Now, observing a sign is not wrong. And as I pointed out, you can it's not in the notes, but you can pencil it in there. For believers in the dispensation of Israel, observing a sign is not wrong. For you and I in the church, observing a sign is ridiculous because there are no signs. We live in the stewardship that has no signs. The, the rapture of the church will end this age and there's no sign of the coming rapture. It's imminent. It could happen today. It could have happened in Paul's lifetime. There's no, could have happened any time in the last 2,000 years. There's no sign that has to take place. Otherwise, we would be told to look for this sign. We're told to look for Christ. There's no signs between now and the rapture of the church. Now, for the Jewish believers, though, observing a sign is not wrong, but craving additional signs after previous signs have been given indicates an evil, adulterous culture. It shows, as he describes them, you are an evil, adulterous generation. And we can use the term generation and culture interchangeably because culture does change from generation to generation. Our culture is different from our parents' culture, and theirs was different from their parents' culture and so forth. Each generation thinking that their children's culture is pretty well barbaric, and you wonder how, how bad can it slide? Until then in their generation and their kids come along and they wonder the same thing, right? So far as it goes. I'm sure my grandparents thought Elvis Presley was the Antichrist. And yet for my mother and father, that was, that was their generation. You know, Elvis was the king, so to speak. I remember coming home from school or summer school. I think it was in summer school when he died and, uh, Mom asked if something had happened or you know, what's going on today. And I said, oh, I had nothing at school. I heard on the radio some famous person died. I, I didn't even know his name. And uh, I mispronounced it. I said, I think it was Alvis or Alvin or something. And, and Mom just went, white? Elvis? Elvis Presley? I said, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> oh, you talk about a horrible day. She called three of her friends, wanted to know, is this true? Did this really happen? <laughs> well, that's a generation for you. All right. Generations are different. Each generation has its culture. Each generation has its uh, its heroes and its uh, its uh, activities. Well, now he says an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign and that craving that's not just seeking, but but eagerly seeking, needing um, almost like uh, the nature of withdrawals. If if uh, it's something that you actually crave or need and and. You feel uh, denied if you don't get it. That's the nature of their, uh, of their lust pattern here. The vocabulary for evil and adulterous is interesting, but we gave that and I won't spend more time on that. Paneros is a good term to, to learn for uh, the nature of evil. Satan, that's one of the titles for Satan. He is ha paneros. He is the evil one. And then uh, moikalos is our term for adulterous, used as an adjective here. All right, for the unbeliever, this is new material, for the unbeliever, there is only one sign that matters. That's all they need is the gospel. 
Nothing else matters. If, if, if uh, you're dealing with an unbeliever and they're asking you different things and they want to know about angelic conflict or they want to know about prophecy or they want to know about Israel and the land and all the rest, you can say, you know what? The Bible talks about all of that, but that's not for you right now. It's not for you right now. Those are spiritual truths. They must be spiritually ascertained. I can, I can tell you in English words certain things, and, and because you speak English, you will have a finite understanding of what I'm telling you. But the meaning of what I'm telling you, the true understanding of God's word is beyond any unbeliever. See? So don't try to teach them about angelic conflict. Don't try to teach them about prophecy or all these other things. They need the gospel. That's the one item they need. And Jesus Christ said to this crowd, the only thing you're getting is the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. That's the only sign you're going to get. Because until you accept Christ, until you are saved, none of the rest of this matters. Now, the sign of Jonah indicates that the story of Jonah is typology for Jesus Christ. It's not just the story of Jonah. He calls it the sign of Jonah. And it was a sign that was given, as I mentioned, 800 years prior to Christ. Given way back in the Assyrian Empire when Nineveh was at its peak. And that was designed to teach. Side effect benefit, of course, is the salvation of all those Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. They get to die and they're in heaven to this day. But it continued to be a teaching message that uh, would ha- find its typological fulfillment here in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's typology. The Bible stories are important. I mentioned on Sunday the the nature of the Quran changing the Bible stories. Uh, The Book of Mormon does the same thing. It changes particular Bible stories. Other cults have done the same thing. They come along and they've changed Bible stories. And they don't realize, maybe they do and just don't care, but the side effect of changing the stories is that if if you're going to change the story, what are you going to do with the fulfillment? What do you do with the, with the, if this is typology, what do you do with the reality when it shows up? And the illustration I used on Sunday was with uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. The Muslims came along 700 years later and said, oh, no, no, he sacrificed Ishmael. And so the Quran says that Abraham went up on the mountain with Ishmael and sacrificed Ishmael, say, or was willing to before Allah stopped him. They changed the story. They swapped out Isaac for Ishmael. And they said Ishmael's the, the, the son of blessing. And Isaac was the trickster and the slime. And the, that's why Jews are so evil. Because, you know, and what they did was they called good evil, evil good. They traded out Isaac for Ishmael. And in their Quran, that's what it says. And that's what they believe to this day. And yet, that's the typology. What do they do with the reality? Because that was a picture of a father willing to sacrifice the son that he loved. You get to the reality, and our Bible tells us that God the Father was willing to sacrifice the son that he loved, and unlike where Abraham was spared and a substitute was put in his place, there was no substitute for Jesus Christ. God the Father had to sacrifice the son that he loved. And that actually happened. Not according to the Quran, however. Listen to a Muslim to tell you that Jesus was not the son of God and that he did not die on the cross. So, what's the point to the story? If, if, if there is no typology, if there's no meaning, no significance, if, if Jesus is not the Son of God and if he did not die on the cross, then what's the point to a beloved son that the Father is willing to sacrifice? The meaning for the story is totally gone, according to the Islamic teaching. So, we get back to Jonah now. If, if Jesus doesn't die 
and go into the grave for three days and, and rise again to eternal life. If, if Jesus doesn't do that, why did Jonah spend three days in the whale? That's another story. And it's a story that's adopted and twisted and changed and things. But the story has to have a meaning. And uh, I like the way Jesus calls it here, the sign of Jonah. It was a sign that Jonah gave 800 years prior, but it was a sign for this generation to pay attention to. Secondly, three days and three nights equals on the third day. Equals on the third day. Now, that is an idiom, and we're just going to have to accept it, and I'll give you the scriptures to demonstrate it, but it's an equivalent statement. As it comes across in the Hebrew, we may not think of it as an equivalent statement. In our mind, as English speakers, if I say three days and three nights, then what I'm saying is, is that would then make the resurrection on the fourth day, right? We would tend to think in those terms because that's the nature of the language that we use. But in their language, saying three days and three nights was the equivalent of saying on the third day. And we'll show you that. In fact, we're going to spend some time on that. We've got time today. We'll spend some time on that to, uh, to demonstrate that. But one of the ne- simplest ways you can demonstrate that is use your synoptic gospels. Use the fact that we have the same story told three different times in Mark 8 and verse 31. In Mark 8 and verse 31, we're told... He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's the language in Mark. After three days rise again. Now when we use the language after three days, what are we thinking as English speakers? On the fourth day. Right. If I say that we're going we're gonna to do something and then after three days this is going to happen, we tend to place that on the fourth day okay not so to the hebrew mind to the hebrew mind on the third day is the same as after three days because they're inclusive rather than exclusive in their uh, daily reckoning all right and so there's that record there in mark where it says after three days but in both matthew 16:21 and in luke 9:22, parallel text to uh, to the same incident we just read those authors use the phrase on the third day. Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It's the same thing in Luke on the third day in Luke nine twenty two. So we see that these idioms are equivalents. And they're interchangeable. And it's natural to the Hebrew mind, reflected in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament and reflected in the, um, the Greek text of the New Testament, bearing in mind that the New Testament authors are writing in Greek with the Hebrew influence. Some of the things we examined last night, by the way, in our Hebrew class. Harold Honer is an author that I've recommended a number of times. He did some tremendous work... Um, as a follow-up to Sir Robert Anderson. If you've ever read Sir Robert Anderson, The Coming Prince, great work. It was done over 100 years ago. It was done in the 19th century. Outstanding work, but it's flawed. His math has a couple of errors in it, and his starting date is incorrect. He starts with a date of 445 B.C. for Artaxerxes' decree. He ends up with a crucifixion in 32 A.D. Harold Honer does two things. He updates the calendar to a more accurate reckoning of 444 B.C. for uh, uh 
the signing of that decree by Artaxerxes. He also repairs the, the two mathematical errors that take place. And so uh, he takes Daniel's 70-week prophecy from 444 B.C. to 33 A.D. and gives you your 33 A.D. crucifixion for Jesus Christ. Great chronology work by Harold Honer. He did an article, by the way, on the actual day of Christ's crucifixion. I want to spend some time on that this morning as well called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. He originally wrote it in six different parts, and they appeared in different journals. And that's what I have on my software. I have the journals, and so I've got this broken down in six different parts. But those articles were then compiled into a book, and you can get that book uh, at Amazon or ChristianBook.com or wherever you like to buy your books. I've even seen them locally here at Family Christian Store. Uh, Harold W. Honer, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And he goes through some tremendous study here on the day of the week. There are three views for the day of Christ's death, namely the Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday crucifixion. You ever read any of this before? Typically, or you just accept Friday. Friday's the traditional day. And in some cases, you just go with that. Um, there's other cases where you say, well, okay, the traditional day might be reliable or traditional whatever, traditional location. If you take a tour of the Holy Land, they'll, they'll show you all the places where somebody supposedly did something, right? They don't know. Were they there? Okay. In any event, uh, in this case, though, the tradition is sound. The tradition is reliable. We do accept a Friday crucifixion. Died on Good Friday, was raised on Sunday. So he goes through the different views, the Wednesday crucifixion, and he, he gives the evidence for it, the evidence against it, the text uh, that seems to support it, and uh, then he gives a pretty good critique of why uh, the problems are, are too, uh, too difficult. Notice, one of the texts that will continually keep coming up is this Matthew 1240, uh, the text that we're looking at here, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the sea monster. See, what they're looking at is with the Wednesday view, they, they need to have three complete days and three complete nights, and then only then, after which time, then can he be raised. And so he addresses that. The three days and three nights in Matthew twelve forty is an idiomatic expression equal to on the third day. Now there's some quotes in here. Then he deals with the Thursday crucifixion. And then evidence for, evidence against. And then he gets to the Friday crucifixion. Uh, another aspect, too, by the way, that you've got to deal with is the Passover meal. The night before, Jesus Christ sent his disciples into town. And he said, Find, there's a man in there. He's got an upper room ready to go. And tell him that the master has need of it. And uh, he and his disciples were going to observe the Passover. The night before he was arrested, okay? And it was a Passover, and on, think of it now as a Thursday night Passover, okay? And he has, he has uh, Passover with his disciples. Not only does he have Passover with his disciples, but then he gives them communion, the very first communion service, teaches them a new ritual for the, the coming church age. Um, and then Judas goes out to betray him, and then he gets arrested in the garden, and then he has a trial in the middle of the night, and then he has a legal trial the next morning once the sun comes up. He has another, a third trial when he's finally led away and, and crucified on Friday. All right? And he's hanging on the cross, and he's paying for our sins, and darkness comes, and all that's done, and it is finished, and so forth. And then there's a problem because the Pharisees say, come to Pilate and say, you know, we've got to get that body off the cross. And we've got to get them buried because of why? They had to observe the Passover. 
They had to observe the Passover. And so we have two Passovers. We've got a Thursday Passover meal and a Friday Passover meal. And that's not, well, it is a, it's a problem at first. Some people view it as a fatal problem and say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. We can't handle this. But there is an answer for why um, there were Jews that observed the Passover dinner on Thursday night and there were Jews that observed Passover dinner on Friday night in this particular year with Nisan 14 being the Friday. All right. So, uh, and it's a fascinating study why it was observed both Thursday night and Friday night, depending on whether you were a Galilean or a Judean uh, observer of these things. Okay. Honer goes into studies like that. Saying you can spend hours on this stuff, but, and, and it doesn't exactly preach well on a Sunday morning, but it's important that you learn your chronologies and it's important that you learn why these things are not contradictions. And if a skeptic tries to throw it at you and say, you know, your Bible's unreliable, I say, no. Matter of fact, that little bit of trivia you just brought up really testifies to the accuracy of our scriptures more than anything else. Because it demonstrates the, the nature of the, both the Thursday observance and the Friday observance of the Passover meal. All right, that's in another one of these articles. So if you get that book, you're going to get all of this discussion, by the way. Then the Friday crucifixion. Jesus predicted that he would die and be raised on the third day. Yeah, beyond the fact that you have this one passage that does mention three days and three nights, you've got several passages that use the phrase on the third day, on the third day, on the third day. And so recognizing that it's a both and, that all scripture is true. I believe the scripture that says on the third day, and I believe the scripture that says after three days and three nights. When you understand the idiomatic nature of it, you accept them both and you relax. But Matthew 16, 21, on the third day. And if you don't want to, you can click these, by the way, and your Bible will turn there. And so it's easy enough just to read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it saves you a lot of page flipping. Um, but if you don't want to actually flip, if you want to leave that there in that verse, all you've got to do is hover your mouse, and it pops up. And you hover your mouse there, and it pops up. Hover your mouse there, and it pops up. So it saves even more, just depending on what you want to do with it. When one reads these events in the Gospels, one clearly receives the impression that Jesus rose on the third day. Jesus' body was laid in the tomb on the evening of the day of preparation, Friday, the day before the Sabbath. A bunch of references, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all testify to that. The women returned home and rested on the Sabbath. That would have been Saturday. And then early on the first day of the week, Sunday, they went to the tomb. That's why we have our big church services on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week. It's the eighth day, which is the first day which is the, uh, the day of our worship, why we no longer worship on the, the Sabbath like the Jews in the Old Testament assembled on the Saturday Sabbath. So it was early on the first day of the week, Sunday, would have been April 5th, 33 A.D., they went to the tomb, which was empty. Furthermore, on the same day he rose from the grave, Jesus walked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24:13, And that's the whole basis behind the, uh, the walk to Emmaus approach, uh, or the road to Emmaus approach that, uh, that uh, we have over here in the library. They told him that their master was crucified, and now it is the third day since this occurred. In Matthew 24, 31, or 21. Okay? So that's the evidence. That after three days and three nights equals on the third day. With all this evidence, the only viable conclusion is that Jesus was crucified on Friday and rose on Sunday. This view also fits well with Old Testament typology. On Monday, Nisan 10, Jesus presented himself as the Paschal Lamb at the triumphant entry. Y'all thought it was Palm Sunday, didn't you? That's the traditional date. 
It's a traditional date. That's one day off. It's Palm Monday. He made his entrance in Jerusalem on Nisan 10. On why do we call it Palm anything? He just went, he walked into Jerusalem and rode into Jerusalem humble, riding on a colt. And it was a Monday, not a Sunday. Nisan 10. That was the day that the Passover lamb was selected according to their culture. On Nisan 14, he was sacrificed as the Paschal lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover, has been crucified. And on Nisan 16, his resurrection was a type of the offering of first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. All right. I think the last part of this, uh, here, the critique of the view. He goes ahead and he gives, although I think he's already proven it overabundantly, he goes ahead and says, okay, for those that criticize the Friday view, here's how they critique it. The one problem that is proposed against the Friday view is Matthew 12:40, that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Admittedly, this is the most difficult verse for those who hold the Friday view, but it is not as formidable as it first appears. One must examine all the evidence at hand. First to be discussed is the New Testament evidence. The most frequent reference to Jesus' resurrection is to have occurred on the third day, not on the fourth day. And all of those scriptures, Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, Matthew 27. It was not like Matthew was confused in chapter 12 because four times later in Matthew, he uses the phrase on the third day. Likewise, five times in Luke, once in Acts, once in 1 Corinthians, called on the third day. In John 2, 19 through 22, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. For Jesus spoke of his resurrection. He stated that he would be raised up in three days and not on the fourth day. And then he addresses the passages where it does speak as occurring after three days. And the neat part is, is when those appear, the uh, parallel passages give us the uh, the equivalent statement three days later three days later he will rise again um, interesting in Matthew where the Pharisees before Pilate stated that Jesus had predicted that after three days I will rise again the Pharisees then asked Pilate if they could have a guard of soldiers to secure the, the sepulcher until the third day they understood the idiom they said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm to rise again. You know, they just called our Lord that deceiver. And they're serving the liar and the father of lies. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. They call him that deceiver. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. They weren't worried about the fourth day. They understood what the idiom after three days meant. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. This is the stolen body theory that, oh, he didn't rise from the dead. His disciples came and stole the body, which, you know, a, a skeptic might look at that. And probably the same kind of idiots that think that our, you know, our president blew up the World Trade Center. They would believe any kind of dumb conspiracy, right? Oh, yeah, the disciples stole the body. Well, okay, let's say they are grave robbers and they stole a dead body. How does that explain all the living appearances, the resurrection appearances? In one case, to over 500 people at the same time. And he had all of these different post-resurrection appearances and they weren't parading a stolen dead body around. It was the living, resurrected Savior who was speaking and eating and, and teaching the Word of God. So the stolen body thing is uh, is ridiculous. We'll talk about that when we get to the 
to the event itself. All right. I guess we'll let it go with that. There's more, but I think we're clear that the idiom, that this is not an issue three days and three nights or after three days. Those are idiom equivalents of on the third day. And I think we can relax after that. All right, two final things to deal with. Believers will have a speaking role at the great white throne judgment. Believers will have a speaking role at the great white throne judgment of unbelievers. I think that gets overlooked. Is is Christ just using uh, hyperbole here? Is he just uh, is he is he waxing eloquent in a poetic fashion, or is he speaking of a future event when he says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment? I think when Jesus said that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, then that means that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. Now they will have already had their judgment. They will be they're believers, Old Testament believers. They, they take part in the first resurrection. And blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection because over them death has no power. And these guys, though, these unbelievers, these Pharisees, are going to stand at the second resurrection, the resurrection of death, the resurrection of judgment. They will be raised in order to stand at the great white throne in order to bend the knee and in order to uh, confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord as they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But... Jesus Christ is not the only one speaking on that occasion. Testimony is taken, interestingly enough. Now, do we have all the details on it? No. But we do have this text, both with the example of the men of Nineveh and also the example of the Queen of the South. Um, And uh, the other passages we dealt with previously that related to Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, those don't exactly apply because they also are going to stand at the great white throne judgment as unbelievers. They're going to be resurrected to die, to to be cast into the lake of fire. They're not going to offer testimony. It just tells us that their uh, torment will be more tolerable. Remember that phrase? It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for Bethsaida and Chorazin. Not that they get to testify, not that they can rebuke, They have no room to rebuke. They themselves are being condemned. But it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment. And in my mind, I could be a pastor for 150 years. I don't know that I'll ever understand that. How can any incarceration in the lake of fire be more tolerable than any other incarceration in the lake of fire? They're all going to spend eternity separated from the light of of the glory of Jesus Christ. All right? But that's what Scripture says, so I believe it. I believe that the Sodomites will not will be more tolerable than the uh, than the uh, Capernaumites for all eternity in the lake of fire. But now it says they will stand up, and it says will condemn it. Now stand up is important because that shows that their position is one of offering testimony. They're not seated on thrones, but they will stand up, meaning they're going to be called in to stand and testify. We even use the same expression, you take the stand, right? If you're asked to testify in court, you have to take the stand, which I find amusing because the first thing you do then is sit down, (laughs) right? You take the stand and then you take your seat. But you do take the stand and what do you do? With your hand on a Bible, unless, have they thrown Bibles out of courts yet? With your hand on a Bible, your hand in the air, you take an oath. You're going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You're taking the stand and then you sit down and you offer your testimony. 
Well, they will take their stand and they will condemn it. They themselves are going to have a pronunciation to make. A speaking role. You and I will have speaking roles, although ours come in the realm of angels. We will judge the angels, we're told. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We will judge the angels. These are Gentile believers from the Old Testament. They're going to have a speaking role judging Jewish unbelievers, also from the Old Testament. Likewise, Queen of the South, Gentile believer in the Old Testament, able to offer condemning testimony to the uh, Jews that rejected the Christ, even though he was right before their very eyes. So a speaking role. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves before God, but there is a place for other accounts to be made. And as I say, do we have all the details on this? No. We just have clues. We have glimpses. Uh, so take that, write that passage down. The Luke 11 is a parallel. Luke 11, 31 and 32. Also write down on this, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1, we shall judge the angels. That'll be our speaking role. And actually it's 6, 3. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? And I would also add to this Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13:17. Now there's an exegetical question on this verse, and not every pastor teaches it the way I do, but I believe many do. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now some pastors soften that and say, well, that just means that pastors are accountable. Yes, pastors are accountable, but that text doesn't say that pastors are accountable. That text says that in a future point of time, they will give an account. They will deliver a word. They will speak a word. They will report. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. They will give an account. Now, I don't know. Do we have all the details on that? I don't know. But at the judgment seat of Christ, when our lives are being evaluated, when Gold, silver, and precious stones is being purified. When wood, hay, and stubble is being burned away. When rewards are being handed down. When the confession awards are then presented. Remember, if you confess Christ before this world, then Christ will confess you before his Father and before the angels, and you receive that confessor award. You can only get that if Jesus Christ confesses you before his Father and before the angels. If you deny him before men, then he will deny you before the Father and before angels. That is, he will deny you that confessor's award. Don't lose your salvation, of course. Well, now then there's this other, the, the, the pastoral account. When your spiritual leader gives an account, will it be with joy or with grief? See, and I don't know exactly how this works. But, you know, you imagine a believer and he's there at the judgment seat of Christ. He's getting his rewards. He's, he has gold, silver, and precious stones crowns. The other stuff's all burned up. He's getting his confessor award from Jesus Christ, or he's not getting his confessor award from Jesus Christ. And then the spiritual leaders are brought in. And the spiritual leaders are asked, give an account for this believer. Are you doing that with joy or are you doing that with grief? <laughs> all right. And the pastor kind of hangs his head and says, uh, well, uh, I'm not happy to say. But my, uh, my, my account, my report is, uh, is not favorable. Well, there's no profit there. There's no reward there. Or, I'm very joyous to say this was a believer that walked in the light, that kept their armor on, that lived the word of God, that supported their spiritual ministry, that uh, was, uh, was a blessing, it was a delight to be their pastor. 
this would be profitable for you. Anyway, that's Hebrews 13, 17. There is an eternal context for Hebrews 13, 17. And we don't totally understand it, but it ties in with Matthew 12, 41, that there is a verbal speaking role at these various judgments. At these various judgments. I would also point out that some of these are not going to be pleasant. Revelation chapter 3. The idea of not being hurt, actually Revelation 2.11, not being hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And um, we've got Revelation coming up. We're going we're to be teaching Revelation on Sunday morning starting in October. Um, hurt by the second death. You can take that a, a couple of different ways. Obviously, we don't experience the second death. If you're born twice, you only die once, right? If you're only born once, then you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically. You, have, you face the second death, the lake of fire for all eternity. But beyond not experiencing the second death, as a reward to the overcomer, the idea of not being hurt by the second death is uh, it's one we want to start thinking about, start chewing on. Because just as you can have confidence... At his appearing, 1 John 2. You can also shrink away in shame at his appearing, 1 John 2.28. And I believe that there are two conditions by which we may sit in judgment with Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And in some cases, we're going to be hurt. It's going to hurt. I can't imagine seeing my loved one cast into hell. Or, uh, it's going to hurt. Don't you think? And especially if that's a loved one that you wanted to give the gospel to, but didn't. How much is that going to hurt? When you watch them bend the knee and confess the tongue and uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and then watch them cast into the lake of fire. How much is that going to hurt? When you know that you didn't give them the gospel and you were supposed to. Okay. Now the promise of a word there though is that you will not be hurt by the second death. Meaning that for the overcomer, for the mature believer, for a believer with, with the, the intimacy with Christ, with the like-mindedness with Christ, with a doctrine in their soul, a, a believer can have the perfect standard of righteousness that Jesus Christ Himself has, that God the Father has, to where without any hurt whatsoever, you observe that second death being administered and you praise the Lord. Because all things are done to His praise and to His glory. And, and not being hurt by watching that person cast into the lake of fire, but rather praising the Lord that that rejecter of Jesus Christ is cast into the lake of fire. That promise to not be hurt by the second death, I think is more powerful than we've really ever given it credit for. And I hope that... Uh, when we actually get into the text of why all seven of these are available for church age saints. All seven of these. This is the message to the seven churches. It's a church age reward for church age saints, for members of the bride. All right? And we'll be teaching that coming up here in October. So believers will have a speaking role at the great white throne judgment. We know we're going to have a speaking role at the judgment seat of Christ, but a speaking role is going to be about us. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God 
This is a separate matter. This is where we're seated on thrones. Along with Jesus Christ on his throne. All right, then finally, the fifth and final element. Jesus observes this evil generation. And he is struck by their worsening state. He observes this evil generation. And he is struck by their worsening state. And that's the nature of he's providing a benefit for these guys. He has cast a demon out. And they said, oh, you only did that by the power of Beelzebub. And then right before their eyes, they start demanding all these signs and so forth. And they're doing all this other stuff. And while he's trying to teach them the word of God about making the tree good and its fruit good and these other things that he's trying to teach, you can almost envision this happening. He's trying to teach. The crowds are all out there. The hostility is there. Some maybe might be listening. And he's teaching and the disciples are all there. And while all this is going on, there's that man there that he cast the demon out, that mute man that he cast that demon out. And wouldn't you know it, the guy's coming back. And he brought seven friends with him. And now what's this guy doing? All right? So the, uh, right before his eyes, he's observing this. The Christ is with them, proclaiming these messages of eternal life, and they want no part of it. So he observes this evil generation, and he's struck by their worsening state. And I believe it hurt. It's not sinful to be hurt. We were told in John 11, Jesus wept. Why? Because it hurt. Not that he was carnal, not that he sinned, but he's watching all the boo-hooing and the hopelessness and the, the, the horrible things there with the lack of faith by Mary, by Martha, by the crowds. And he weeps. I believe he also wept because Lazarus was out of, with no more sickness, no more suffering, no more pain. Lazarus is already uh, out, of, out of this world. What a delight. And he's going to have to bring him back. Can you imagine that? Think of all the things you, you never want to go back to in your life. Multiply it times a million. And that's what Jesus told Lazarus to do. Lazarus come forth and he had to come back into mortality again. Back into a body of sin. No wonder he wept. I, he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem and said, How I often wanted to gather to you. Gather you in as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And he wept. We find lots of illustrations of that, and in, in, in I think all too often we write it off and say, oh, well, that's poetry. That's uh, anthropomorphism, anthropopathism is a figure of speech. God's not sorrowful. Well, then why does it say he's sorrowful? Why does it say he's angered? Why does it say he has wrath? Why does it say he's a jealous God? Sorrow doesn't mean you're carnal. Likewise, the sorrow we may have at the great white throne, is that carnal? Sorrow we might experience. And I find it fascinating. This is the last thing I'll leave you with. But in Revelation 22, can you tell I'm eager to get into Revelation? <laughs> I have read the book of Revelation probably 200 times in the last six months. I mean, every day. Every day, reading a minimum of three or four chapters every day, going through all this, all 22 chapters. And it's remarkable. Because what do you have in chapter 20? Great white throne. And uh, unbelievers cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. If their name's not written in the book of life, 
thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. And then, then, in chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear. Why are we, te- why are we crying? What are the tears for? Why are the tears not wiped away before the great white throne in chapter 20? But it's in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21. For the first heaven and first earth passed away, there's no longer any sea. And then, behold, all things are new and, and, uh, and these things. It's then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But that cannot happen prior to the great white throne of Revelation 20. I find that to be significant. We'll have a lot to deal with that when we get to that point of time. Because this then launches us into the, uh, the fatherhood of Christ and the fulfillment of the fullness of time and the things that happen there. Verse 7, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's Jesus Christ speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I will be his God, and he will be my son. The fatherhood of the son and the fulfillment of the fullness of time, that's... Good stuff that we got coming up, and I hope to just tease you with it a little bit here this morning. All right, our next episode is episode 26, which we will get to in three weeks' time, where his mother and his brothers seek an audience. This is where he's teaching Bible class, and then someone you know passes a note in and says, oh, you know, Mary and these monsters out here, they want to talk to you, right? And he immediately ends his Bible class, interrupts everything, and says, oh, sorry, I've got I to gotta go deal with my family. Is that what he does? No, he finishes his Bible class, and he goes out to his family. So we'll talk about that, uh, because that's, it's taught wrong. I think a lot of times they said that he, he blew off his family. And they said, who are my brothers and my sisters? But you guys that, obey, that have faith in Christ that do this stuff, you're my brothers and my sisters. And they teach it as if he somehow he's, he's blowing them off. He doesn't do that. He uses it because they set the table. He teaches the Bible class. And when class is done, then he goes out, and he says, okay, Mom, what do you, what do you, what do you want? You know, deals with mom after class. All right, well, we'll talk about that. That'll be three weeks from today. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your uh, uh, faithfulness to guide us in the truth. Thankful, uh, Father, for this class, for the ladies that come together for prayer time. Father, uh, what a delight. Father, the invisible warriors and those that that uh, wrestle with uh, with the angel and they don't, uh, they don't give up. They don't let go until the answers are provided. Father, it is an abundant time. Today is a day of abundant blessing. We have the prayer meeting in the morning, prayer meeting in the evening, double portion in our teaching opportunities. What a delight. We thank you for that as well. And Father, thank you for the surprises in life, the things that come along that that uh, is just a testimony to grace. And we, we praise your name for what you've supplied. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.